0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, happy Friday. It's March 26th, and we are coming to you from Strictly VCHQ, which is an office over our garage, should you be remotely curious. We hope you had a terrific week, listeners. We were pretty busy, per the usual, just trying to keep up with all the news in the tech world. One of the biggest stories of the week was yesterday's congressional hearing about the Capitol riot on January 6th and the misinformation that led to it. Unfortunately, the CEOs of Google, Facebook, and Twitter who were called in to testify in the matter didn't have a lot to say, which was unsurprising based on their past performances. If anything, they're just getting better at saying nothing, which begs the question of how useful these hearings are. As the CEO of a think tank called the Center for Democracy and Technology told The Washington Post afterward, the questions asked yesterday show the lawmakers are serious. How they actually craft a path forward remains to be seen. Of course, there are a lot of other newsy tidbits to chew through. We are going to take a look at a few of the most notable items before diving into this week's interview with John Ruffalo, one of the most prominent investors in Canada and also one of Strictly VC's very first readers, as he reminded us in our conversation today. Thanks, John. Ruffalo has been through an amazing ordeal. He also just closed one of Canada's biggest debut funds ever. We talk about both of
1: these. But first, the news. WeWork is trying to go public again. This time, the gig economy desk rental business is taking the SPAC route, merging with Boex Acquisition Corp., a blank check company organized by Bo Capital Management. The deal values WeWork at $9 billion, a steep discount from the $47 billion valuation it commanded in a financing round led by SoftBank way back in 2019. Post-merger, SoftBank, which has sunk more than $11 billion into WeWork, will hold a majority stake in the company. Still, WeWork's future seems far from secure. Despite firing more than a quarter of WeWork's 12,000 employees and closing a host of locations, the company lost more than $3 billion in 2020. WeWork is hoping that the office market will recover quickly this fall as COVID vaccines become more widely available, But let's remember, this is a company whose former CEO once told investors that WeWork wasn't just leasing office space. It was building a physical social network and creating a world where people make a life and not just a living. As for Mr. Newman, not to worry. He is going to do just fine. In February, the Journal reported that SoftBank bought a quarter of Newman's stock in WeWork for $500 million, extended the payment of a $430 million loan that it had granted him by five years, and paid him an additional $50 million in legal fees. All this in addition to $130 million in consulting fees that Newman previously received from the Japanese conglomerate.
0: I also looked this week at NFTs, those unique digital widgets that are typically part of the Ethereum blockchain and can be used to identify the owner of a piece of digital art. Listeners of this podcast may recall we talked with investor David Packman of Venrock about these roughly a month ago, where we discussed his investment in Dapper Labs, the platform behind CryptoKitties, limited edition digital cats that can be bought and bred with cryptocurrency and that struck a recent deal with the NBA to sell collectible highlight clips. Things were already getting zany the week of that conversation, and a lot has happened since, including famously the $69 million JPEG that digital artist Beeple sold to a Singapore-based crypto investor with the help of Christie's, the auction house. Because so much has been happening, I talked with a handful of experts whose job it is to analyze blockchain transactions for the government and other enterprises to ask what they make of all this activity. Unsurprisingly, they're watching closely for bad actors. Though none could say definitively that NFTs are being used for criminal purposes, they basically suggested they'd be shocked if that's not happening. For one thing, money laundering is a huge issue in the art world, and when it comes to NFTs, pricing is even more erratic, which makes it hard to spot suspicious activity. It also isn't a stretch to think that some of the people on both ends of some of these deals, those minting NFTs and those buying them, are colluding. As Jesse Spiro, the chief of government affairs at the blockchain analysis firm Chainalysis told me, while there are so-called know-your-customer and anti-money laundering laws in the U.S. that the exchanges and marketplaces trading in NFTs should have in place, many do not yet. And while it remains a, quote, gray area, in his words, it's probably safe to assume that some of the people right now helping fuel the nifty frenzy are more interested in moving money from point A to B than they are with adding a new digital collectible to their collection.
1: Up next, our interview with investor John Ruffalo, the founder of Omer's Ventures, and more recently, the founder of Maverick's Private Equity. But first, a word from our sponsor. Connie, you know you should be using a VPN. What's holding you back?
0: I don't know. They're just so slow.
1: Yep. But a recent test by AV Test found that NordVPN is up to 3x faster than the competition. I've been using NordVPN for the last month, it's true, and I haven't noticed any dip in performance.
0: What about security?
1: NordVPN doesn't log your data, and it offers double data encryption for increased anonymity.
0: Wow! I know VPNs are great when you're on your computer, in a cafe, or in an airport, but we're not going anywhere these days.
1: That's true. But say you're researching a story. No matter where you go, you can remain anonymous. Go to nordvpn.com strictlyvc or use code strictlyvc to get a two-year plan plus one additional month with a huge discount. If for whatever reason you're not satisfied, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee.
0: You're so formal. How about if I just use your subscription?
1: That works too. One NordVPN account will cover six devices at once. Sold. For more information about NordVPN, please visit nordvpn.com/strictlyvc today.
0: And now our interview with John Ruffalo, an investor who began working alongside tech companies in his 20s at the consulting firm Arthur Anderson, where he rose to head its tech, media, and telecommunications practice before joining Omer's roughly a decade ago when a former colleague became CEO and brought him aboard the pension giant to create a venture fund. Ruffalo's mandate was to back the most promising Canadian companies, and he steered the unit into investments like the social media management company Hootsuite, the recently acquired storytelling platform Wattpad and the e-commerce platform Shopify, among other deals. Three years later, after helping Omers get a growth equity unit off the ground, Buffalo left to launch his own fund. Then came COVID. And as if the pandemic weren't bad enough, he further underwent a harrowing ordeal last summer. An avid cyclist, he set out to ride 60 miles one sunny morning on a country road, was knocked off his bike by a truck, and shattered most of his bones in an accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. That kind of one, two punch might drive someone to the brink. Instead, six months and multiple surgeries later, Ruffalo is undergoing training and therapy and hopes to bike again someday. He's also very much back to work and just taking the wraps off his new Toronto based firm, Mavericks Private Equity. We talked with Ruffalo this morning. John, it is great to see you. Thank you. And I was so happy when you reached out to me. You know, I, like so many people, was so upset when I saw your news last summer. And I'm sure you're tired of answering the question, but how are you doing?
2: Well, when somebody says it's great to be alive, it is. I actually never knew how close I was to death, to be honest, until about eight days after the accident. It was about eight days later. And finally, I asked for my phone just to kind of see what's going on in the world. And there was thousands of messages coming through. And I'm like, what the hell? And people were copying various articles. And I picked off the first one and it said, John suffered a life-threatening injury. And I'm kind of thinking, life-threatening? What, like, why are they saying that? And the doctors came in and said, because it was. And we thought that you were going to die in the first 48 hours. And in fact, I subsequently spoke to some of the top physicians. They don't understand why I didn't die on impact that kind of scared me a little bit. But then it was like, I'm so glad to be alive. And my recovery is far ahead of schedule. It was only within a couple of weeks where I started feeling my legs again. And maybe a week or two later, I started being able to move it. So very, very early on, despite surviving, and then despite getting the worst imaginable diagnosis, even the doctor who gave me that diagnosis went, Oh, my God, I don't understand this. And to this day, my surgeon, who's one of the greatest neurosurgeons in the world, still every so often would say, you know, I don't understand how you didn't die. Is It's just showing that we really don't know so many elements of the human body.
0: I read this amazing story in the Globe and Mail, and it outlines in the piece how there's a truck approaching you from the back, yep. hit your wheel, slammed on the brakes, but the back of the truck flipped around. Is that what happened?
2: Yes, It jackknifed at 80 kilometers an hour. That's incredible. Yes. And I remember all the moments, which is a little bit bizarre because I never ever hit my head. Thank God. And I was wearing a helmet again. Thank God. I'm not going to speak on what the driver was doing, but we're talking a sunny day, straight road, not treed, and there is no real paved shoulder, but I'm running tight. And I did this every week during COVID. and. Just out of the blue, you hear the screeching sound of the air brakes go on. It's deafening. And I'm saying, who is the asshole that's right on my back wheel? Sure. And I was livid. I was just going to just tear this guy apart because any cyclists out there will tell you how some of these irresponsible drivers do it on purpose. And some of them are just careless. And then the moment I'm thinking that, boom, it hits me in the back, actually. And without going into detail, when I saw my bike afterwards, which is completely unrecognizable, the part of the stem of the pole, like we know where the seat goes on, Mm -hmm. broke off, clean off, Mm -hmm. and was actually still under my butt. And when I went flying through the air, the seat was halfway between my bike and my body. That's the impact that did that. And when the truck hit it, that's what shattered my vertebrae at the T12 level and paralyzed me. But the double whammy is I did fly very high in the air, and the impact of landing split my pelvis in half. So it's called an open book fracture. I just found out yesterday, by the way, that as my pelvis split in half, each side split into three pieces. Oh my so it God. actually split into six pieces. All of my ribs were broken. I lost my kidney, collapsed my lung, but the danger that all of it's dangerous, but I lost half of my blood from internal bleeding. And that's what was causing the greatest distress because they just didn't know what was bleeding. And that's what made the surgery difficult. So I was not even operated on for another 36 hours, but I got to tell you- After
0: the accident, they wanted to wait 36 36 hours to figure out- Yeah. Wow. Wow.
2: I'll tell you what the worst part was. I mean, that doesn't sound bad enough. I laid on the ground and then I woke to the sound of a paramedic saying to me, John, can you hear me? And I'm like, yes. And then I'm using my arm to get up. I'm trying to get up and not realizing everything's shattered. And they're like, no, 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 do not move. And I'm like, "Uh oh, and they asked for my wife's phone number. I had to give him my password, my phone and stuff. But the worst part was they had to rush me to hospital and they were going to take a helicopter, but realized that I had an X amount of time before I bled to death. So they put me in the ambulance and they had to drive 25 minutes or so. I'm on my back. And remember, my back is gone at this point. And you're not in a real bed. You're in your stretcher and you're feeling every single pothole. Oh, God. And it's just a constant, and I am freaking out. And I just said to the paramedic, excuse me, but I am going to swear on every single word. (laughs) All I did was fuck, fuck, shit, shit. And the guy goes, please swear Swear away. away. (laughs) I swore for 25 minutes of sheer and utter agony. And then I remember getting to the emergency sign. I got there, and I'm so relieved and they threw that gas mask right on me, and then boom, I was out. But that was the worst 25 minutes that I could ever imagine.
0: Oh my gosh, that sounds horrifying. I would've thought you would've gone into shock, and that didn't happen?
2: No, I was talking, I wish my wife had seen that, because my wife was terrified that I had brain damage. But she didn't see me talking. And then actually what she did say is the fact that I gave my password, my phone number, she actually didn't think I was that bad of an accident because she could hear me talking, but not knowing that I was actually dying while I was talking. I know it was, it's v- rather bizarre.
1: Yeah, I can barely remember the password to my phone on a good day. So, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well,
0: I think what's amazing to Alex and myself reading that story was How quickly, given that you went through this surreal experience that I'm sure you're still trying to reconcile, that very shortly afterward, you were back to thinking about this fund that you were working on right beforehand. So, John, I have to ask, do you think you might be a workaholic? (laughs)
2: Uh, Well, I think some people called it stupid. Uh, (laughs) My first memory was worrying about my family and stuff. I have a group of cycling friends, we're called the Les Domestiques, and it's basically a number of folks who are committed to cycling, but it's a lot of folks who are investors, CEOs of big banks in Canada, we're all close friends. They all came to cocoon the family, to make sure that nothing went wrong with the family. So very, very quickly, I was stunned to see all of these folks take over every element of the family and the kids were fine. Everybody was fine. So I then had a lot of this time in hospital and I do get antsy and I started placing the calls to the investors who were committing to this fund really pre COVID and, and backed mm-hmm. off because of COVID. Uh, I, I would need to test this, but this is one of the largest, if not the largest first time fund in Canadian history. So it was ambitious, and these investors. A lot of them are my friends, and I. I just really wanted to tell them, "Hey, I'm not dead, right. and all my faculties are there." <laughs> so, are you still going to be there when I get out of hospital?
1: Right. Yeah, because they're really investing in you and your track record, right?
2: Yes, yes, that's exactly right. And I got to tell you, it's an interesting comparison. You know, I've had American investors, Canadian investors, American investors are very transactional. So they're very fast to come in if they see a great value proposition. And there's never been so much available capital at any time in the world as there is in the United States. Canada is not the same thing. In Canada, I'm extremely well known as an investor. And there, it's actually relationship driven. So it's both good and bad. Having them come into a first-time fund, even though I'm not a first-time fund manager, It's tough in Canada because they're more conservative. However, they stick with you in bad times. And that's a little bit of our Canadian difference. So, in my case, every single investor, everyone that had committed pre COVID came in. And then a number of them, one in particular, doubled the size of the investment. They just felt bad for me. And I was like, hey, dude, I will take that sympathy card. (laughs) (laughs) Any time. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm
0: really not feeling so great today, especially. Yeah, yeah. My back's kind of hurting. And
2: uh, (laughs) if you gave me a little bit more dollars, I think I would feel better.
1: There's something just so incredibly decent about Canadians that I think Americans admire and also distrust to a certain extent. But it seems like you see a real market for a Canadian-led firm to invest in Canadian companies versus taking money from American counterparts.
2: Yeah. So now this is going a little bit to the thesis. And it's not a new thesis from a US perspective, but it is a new one from a Canadian perspective. So let me just give you a little bit of history. When I founded Omer's Ventures, and at the time, it was a fund of $180 million Canadian. So call that 130 million US in 2011. At the time in Canada, it was like, oh my God, look at the size of that fund. Yet I'm being backed by a hundred billion dollar pension fund. And the real concept was I spent a lot of time with the great funds in the U.S., whether it was the Sequoias of the world or the Andrezans. And in Canada, again, largely due to the conservatism here, there was a frustration with Canadian venture capital. It was very, very risk averse, wouldn't take the same bets as the American counterparts were. And so the thinking was, if you really are a highfalutin firm or entrepreneur, you shall only take US venture capital. But from a Canadian perspective, that's a really bad outcome. So really the idea was I really imported the best of the US methodologies into Canada. And it enabled me to sweep all of the great deals in Canada, whether it was the Shopify's, the Hootsuite's, Wattpad. There's a number of companies that ultimately American folks came in and joined me. But we're really kind of doing the same thing, except it's in the growth private equity space. So the great firms in the US, like an Insight, like a Madison, Dearborn, Bain Capital, General Atlantic Summit, We don't have any of those in Canada. We have great venture capital firms and we have great buyout private equity. But what was really happening here is the entrepreneurs who are building great businesses that are not really tech entrepreneurs, they're just traditional industry entrepreneurs, but they were using all of the great technologies and embedding in their business. There really wasn't a firm here like there is in the U.S., And really all I'm doing is planting a Canadian flag and saying, hey, we have a Canadian firm that will lead or highly participate in these deals. Those firms that I mentioned, I hope that they would partner with me in those deals because the one thing is the Canadian entrepreneurs, just like I had said a little bit at the onset, would prefer a Canadian anchor investor in there when things go bad. Because we tend to be a little bit more patient and relationship driven. That's really the ethos of what we're trying to build. You're planning
0: to work with older companies. This isn't like growth stage tech companies necessarily. Correct.
2: And I know it's really starting to blend together, particularly the big firms that raise a lot of capital like Sequoia, NEA, et cetera, where they're running out of targets to invest in If you stay within the classic definition of what is a technology company, part of my thesis is, which is not too different from many of the firms in the US, we're running into a situation where the actual definition of what is a technology company might actually go away. I use the old definition of a true technology company as one that actually builds the tool sets that are used by other businesses to embed in their businesses to make them bigger, faster, stronger. I've been doing that for 10 years to great success, but there's a massive oversupply of capital in those spaces, particularly in the SaaS software space. It's just not making mathematical sense on a lot of these valuations. And then I turn to financial services, healthcare, travel, whatever. These are not tech entrepreneurs, but they're enlightened. And one of the lessons too is that... We're not introducing technology into the business. They already have it. And one case, uh, a travel company that we're deeply looking at, they have 50 coders on staff. It's not a tech company. But they used a lot of off-the-shelf products, a lot of AI. They embedded it, and then they evolved it into their business. And it's the differentiator on why they're capturing market share faster than their competitors and the incumbents. The problem is they want somebody who understands the travel space, but they want someone who understands technology and the impact as you scale globally. So the challenging part in this business is you got to have a little bit of understanding of venture and you have to understand private equity. It's that hybrid in there. And I know this sounds obvious to a number of your US listeners, but it's not really available in Canada. And so it's really again, importing that product into Canada. And as we've launched right now, oh my God, it's resonating with so many entrepreneurs that are saying, finally, we have an equity solution. So if you ask, what are they all doing now? They're usually getting conventional bank financing in order to grow. And the profile of the companies that I'm talking about, they're on average, hundred million dollars of top line, EBITDA flattish. They haven't done any external financing with institutions, maybe a few angels. They're growing at 20 to 50% a year, but they really want to become the next billion dollar company. And the technology that they're using is enabling them to go there. And that is the classic market that we're trying to hit.
0: And John, how much of the companies do you think you can, oh, I mean, what size checks are you going to be writing? And since these companies haven't taken on funding
2: in the past, what are they comfortable with? Depending on the size of the business, mm-hmm. we're looking at 20 to 40% stakes in the business. So I'd say significant minority, and we're cutting checks of 50 to 75 million US dollar checks, which again, is it's that sweet spot of, you're not quite at that buyout private equity, but you're past the venture stage. Now, in two of our deep opportunities, they're looking for three to $400 million check sizes. So in that case, we have actually already invited one of those eight firms that I just mentioned, who I'm very, very close to. And I said to them, how would you like to come into an incredible deal that you probably are not aware of? And they freaked out. They said, we don't even have it on our radar screen. And they have every other Canadian opportunity because there's no book. They're not going out raising financing. And then if I need a lot of capital right now, I'm backed by two of the biggest pension funds in Canada and they're dying to co-invest with some pretty big size checks so in the one deal that's $400 million U.S., they'll go well and beyond. They'll take everything beyond my $75 million. But we're really trying to sit in that 50 to $75 million check sweet spot.
0: So that's very concentrated. Also, can I ask, is OMERS one of those pension funds?
2: No, because the last thing I did was I built OMERS Growth Equity as well. And then I hired somebody to actually run it before I had left. The challenge that I was having on the OMERS front was they preferred very, very strongly that I stayed in the technology stream only and felt that perhaps I was moving in on the territory of the control buyout private equity group. And so it was getting more and more challenging to sneak in a new business in between two existing businesses. And then number two, I just think that this opportunity was so huge And I've been dying to run my own firm, even though Omers was amazing and it was a classic GPLP situation. I just preferred to build the culture, the team, et cetera, completely independently. Omers now has an existing business, but doesn't really compete against me because again, they're focused more on, I would call it more of late stage VC financing as opposed to true growth private equity.
1: I was surprised to hear that Omers bailed on the Shopify investment fairly early on. Was that because Omers didn't have as much faith in technology as perhaps you did?
2: Yeah. So my role, which people didn't realize, I was running what was called Omers platform investments. And my job really was to go across all of the asset classes and introduce technology and innovation to all of their assets. My belief was we were going to get disintermediated by all of these rising stars. And we're still investing in old businesses using old processes, which by the way, exactly happened. And the Shopify one I thought was an interesting one. So on the venture side, we returned that fund, all of it, and then some in 20 months. It was an unbelievable return for us. And we knew it had a very vast road ahead of it. We wanted to hand it over to the capital markets group once our hold period of six months was over. But they had some stringent views that, unless the market cap was, I don't even remember what the number was, 10 billion or some other number like that, there was a lack of interest. And yet we were building and investing in all of the rising stars. And I would be saying, guys, this is going to disintermediate so many of the businesses that you think. Are going to do well. We had to liquidate the Shopify stake over, I think, 36 trades. And what was funny, every trade, the value was higher. And I was just like, oh. And we would have today had a stake of 13% of Shopify. It was a $15 billion stake. The pension fund has $100 billion of assets. The thing that always drove me nuts is everybody told me the problem with venture at a pension fund level is that it would never, ever move the needle. That would have been the single biggest holding of any asset that Omer's had. So Omer's wasn't being foolish, frankly. In fact, Omer's was the leading pension fund who actually believed in building the venture business. So in many respects, they were so ahead of the game. But that was just an opportunity that just makes me shudder a little bit. But I think every other pension fund would have acted in the exact same manner. Obviously, that's the deal of a lifetime. It was valued at
0: $1.27 when it went out in 2015, just to underscore for readers and listeners. And it's now a $130 billion company.
2: Yes. And we invested at a small fraction of that number, very small fraction. And this was
0: 18 months before the IPO.
2: 18 months. By the way, you guys see this in the U.S. all the time. But even from a U.S. perspective, that's a pretty incredible story. To your point, though, I do see
0: OMERS in a lot of really interesting deals. I do think they do a great job. And I thought it was very savvy for them during this whole GameStock AMC investing frenzy. I I don't know. They had a stake in either. Oh, No.
2: That was CPBIB. I saw that. That was the Canada Pension Plan. Yeah, they made about $400 million or something.
0: They were sitting on this lousy asset. Yes, yeah, I saw that.
1: John, you see a lot of pension funds making more and more forays into direct investment. And VCs tend to snipe at that and say, stay in your lane. Pension funds don't really understand the market as closely as well as we do. What do you think about that tension? And has the world changed? forever.
2: I think it has I think people underestimate the brain power in the pension funds. For your US listeners here, they're somewhat biased because of the US pension model is the most conservative in the world frankly. And by that I mean they're really not permitted to make direct investments and are really forced to make only fund investments and in many cases It's not even the employees of the U.S. pension funds that are making those decisions, but rather they hire a firm to make those decisions, and they're just really executing that. And it really is around that model. The Canadian pension fund model is completely the opposite of that, and not too dissimilar to some of the ones that you'll see or the sovereign wealth funds in, say, the Middle East, for example, and a small number of European ones and some actually Asian ones where they've gone far more direct. So in Omer's case, when I went there, they were the most enlightened to go really direct. And when I went there, what was quite amazing, and it was the condition of me joining, I was worried about what you just said, Alex, in terms of how they operate. So they had agreed with me a completely separate set of governance where. We were a GPLP for fund one. OMERS was 100% of the LP. And then as I got new LPs, they decreased their stake. But the governance was important. Decisions were not made at OMERS, they were made with the OMERS Ventures team. And that was really a great innovation. And frankly, we were the first pension fund in the world to do that. And now, what's happened over the last 10 years, you're seeing Everyone in Canada following that route, including the two pension funds that are backing me. I am the very first growth fund that they've invested in in this manner. And part of the value proposition that they want from me is how do you help the rest of the pension fund think from an innovation perspective? So I can tell you with absolute clarity everyone in Canada is getting far more aggressive. And I think the reaction by independent venture firms is, uh-oh, they're the ones who are supplying the capital to us. And now they're competing against us and it is a threat. And it's a real, it's a real threat. And you better differentiate your value proposition because you cannot compete against the cost of capital of a huge pool of capital like that.
0: John, going back to Shopify, I was in touch last week with Craig Miller, the former chief product officer. We were talking a little bit about some of the people spinning out of the company and doing interesting things. And of course, he's investing. But he said, even more than investing, he thinks his value really is in talking to founders about how to scale up companies. He said, there's just not that many people globally who've been around a company that's gone from $100 million valuation to $100 billion valuation. But he said, in Canada, especially, this is true. So I'm wondering how you think about this, if you agree, and I guess even with the companies that you're working with, how you get them thinking on a much different scale than they have historically.
2: This is the difference in U.S. environment versus the Canadian environment. If I were to simplify the world into three categories, those companies going from zero to 10 million in revenue, 10 to 100, and then the 100 to the billion dollar plus, very quickly, as we started contributing capital into the ecosystem, and then more VCs came in, we were solving the zero to $10 million problem. And then I focused more on the 10 to the 100. And that was the Shopify's Hootsuites, Wattpads, all of those companies. And I did a bunch in the US as well. And that was my focus really for the rest of the time that I was Omer's Ventures. But starting around 2016 or so, I started to see that companies that were 50, 60, $70 million in revenue and approaching 100 really started the plateau. And the issue was global scalability. And again, in the US, so many companies can be a domestic company in the United States and be a billion dollar company. In Canada, our market is too small. You are forced to sell on a global scale. And many Canadian companies struggle with that. And so my focus now is kind of the last part of the piece. How do we get these hundred million dollar companies into billion dollar plus? I've surrounded myself with folks that have actually done it. My first advisory board member is one of my partners. His name is Jim Balsillie, co founder of BlackBerry. Well, he went from zero to 20 billion in unbelievable speed in revenues. And he's taught me a lot on how to play, frankly, the US game. And I have the biggest home builder in North America that's outgunning all the home builders in the United States. It's called Matami Homes and learning from him. These are the folks on my advisory board who've learned the lesson. Canada Goose, uh, Danny Reese, another great example. We're really creating Team Canada to help these rising entrepreneurs not make the same mistakes that they have done. And I think that if I were to overly summarize what our objective is, I was there during the rise of Shopify and what it's done for the Canadian economy. It's actually unbelievable what it's done. Well, that was great, but we need 10 more to do that. And you're seeing that in the United States, the five big fangs. Yeah. Criticize them all you want, but my God, What it's done to the U.S. is incalculable, and we just need the same things in Canada. Is
1: there interest in SPACs in Canada? Has the SPAC fever come to your country?
2: (laughs) Uh, So just a little funny thing. I was a SPAC king in Canada from 2005 to 2008, and I lost every single dollar. (laughs) Interesting. Yes, it was called CPCs, Capital Pool Companies. It's the exact same thing. And when I saw this thing happen, I just shuddered. I got asked, come on, let's go and promote these SPACs. I just disagree with these. I see the greed that's running to them. There is a window of need of that product for sure. Mm -hmm. But the crap that I'm seeing, I had friends who were saying, should I put money on SPACs? And I just said, you wait until this blows up and you're going to see That the promoters who have taken 20% or whatever their arrangement is, they'll come out fine. And the institutional investors, they got nothing to lose. They end up with a free warrant. It's the retail investors that get smoked, just like GameStop, right? It's wired against them. And for a fund manager, they get, in essence, carry without netting. It's a wonderful deal. But I've been in this game too long. I'm not here to screw anybody. Let's get some ethical investing in here. You know, you know, we saw already one person that took all of their money out and let the, the retail investors sweat it out. Like, come on, this is all going to blow up. Are you talking about Chamath? Chamath, uh, I love the death and he's yeah. another fellow Canadian. <laughs> right. Chamath was my first guy that helped me at Omer's Ventures. and came in my very first deal. But Chamath, I love you, man hopefully he hears, I really love you. smart Smartest guy I've ever met. Goddamn, don't do that. Everybody noticed that. And everyone doesn't believe what you did. And it just gives it a sour taste. I just think it's going to blow up ugly. I just saw, was it Fortune? I just wrote 14 of the last 15 SPACs. Are trading down. Of course it is. And again, this is from the guy that lost 100%. <laughs> That's incredible. Of, yeah, because I got all the shittiest deals because the other folks wanted to go in the proper IPOs, the proper companies. I got the ones that were overvalued, and I see the valuation games that are going on. It's insanity.
1: So if you're not doing SPACs, are you doing nifties?
2: Nifties, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you had turned on the camera before we were chatting, but I've read everything about why everybody thinks it's valuable. I I just think this is going to be another one that just blows apart. I love the blockchain. I'm a big blockchain investor. I love Ethereum in particular, but holy crap. And I love the thesis of how you could own stuff in the digital world. I get it. But what's going on right now? There is no financial reason why it makes sense to me now. What I am fascinated about is where are we heading to? And I think that could be very, very interesting. But let me just say that is not within my business <laughs> or personal investment
0: interest. <laughs> I love the idea that artists could forever trace where their work goes and benefit from yes. the resales, but I can't understand why you'd want a lot of what's being sold you.
2: Yeah. And what I love, and one of my buddies in LA is operating this business. And we've been theorizing this. When you look at the creative industry and the introduction of technology, it, what it's really done is just really always replaced the distributor of that art. Mm -hmm. So whether it's music, television, film, it doesn't matter. It's the distributor that made all of the money and the creator got screwed basically all the time. I love on blockchain, how you could truly democratize that and give the money to the creator that they could track—that I love. And one of my buddies' platforms is called Sing. I don't know if you heard of it, and, but he is one of Canada's greatest bands. Is called Our Lady Peace, and he saw it happen. And now using the blockchain, that is something that I'm passionate about and I absolutely love. But again, I'm curious on some of these things, will the creator get their money or will it again just simply be the distributors who are making all the money on NFTs?
0: Right, right. It does feel though in some ways like the world's gone completely bananas in COVID, (laughs) just finding all these new mechanisms to move money around from A to B to
2: Z. In the US, when they stop printing money, I think that things are going to get back to rational asset values, et cetera. But I thought the U.S. was going to stop for sure by 2020. And boy, that printing machine, I think, is going to go on overtime.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. John, I'm so happy to see you. It's been so great to talk to you. I've heard your phone blowing up (laughs) throughout this. So I'm sorry to keep you a little bit longer than we planned. But thank you for making the time.
2: All right. Well, thank you. It was wonderful to see you folks.
1: Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend.
0: Thanks, everyone. See you next week.